0: Matthew is fine, just to let you know, uh, just a little shaken, I think he just felt bad that I didn't get to enjoy Gene's passing out a few weeks ago, so he thought he'd help me out to, <laughs> to uh, so I wouldn't feel left out since I was out of town when that took place. No, he'll be fine, so uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, take your uh, Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5, as we move out of the fourth chapter, which we've been in for several weeks and move into the fifth chapter uh, you will remember as we've talked about this book of john is built around seven signs seven miracles that jesus did they're not the only miracles jesus did as a matter of fact we have a record that he did uh, uh, miracles in jerusalem all the time john even refers to them he just doesn't deal with those he picks he picks seven miracles very carefully very specifically to show us that Jesus is the Christ. It's his whole purpose. At the end of that book, he'll say to us, when we get to the, the last chapter, he'll say, I've written these things to you that you may know that he is the Christ and you may believe in him as such. John's passion is that you and I believe Jesus is who he said he was. His passion above everything else is that we say, this is the very Son of God. This is the Messiah. He is, as the Samaritan uh, men said, He is the Savior of the world. and that's the whole purpose of this book. And everything John chooses to record for us, to give us detailed accounts of, is to point to that. Typically, as we'll see this week and next week, Jesus will do a miracle, and then he'll talk about what it was all about. And we'll get to the, the discussion of it next week that he himself makes. Today, we want to focus in just on this third sign. The first sign was the turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. The second sign was last week, the healing of the nobleman's son. Doing it his way, not, not the nobleman's way. The nobleman said, come and go with me to my house. Jesus said, no, you go on back. Your son is healed. He's well. He's okay. And so he did that. And then Jesus, John is showing us through Jesus' works the, the magnificence of the growing understanding of the gospel. This third sign is no different. Here as I read from John chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, that's one of the gates of the city, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, it was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now you'd, you'd almost think that is a rather silly question. He's sat by this pool for many years, been an invalid for thirty-eight years, and, and always trying to. And you think that that's sort of a given, but it's not. And he asked the man, "Do you wish to get well?" And the sick man answered him, "Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me." And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And he answered them said, uh, He who made me well is the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, not my fault. Somebody else told me to do it. It's not my responsibility, it's that man. Well, who was that man? Well, he doesn't know. It was the one who made me well that said, pick it up and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well." Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. This is the word of God from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. What is is John wanting us to see here? Obviously, he's wanting to see the power of Jesus in a miracle. But there are any number of miracles he could have chosen to show us that. Why Jesus is at the Pool of Bethesda, why he is at the Sheep Gate on this particular day, John doesn't go into detail with. Even more so, he doesn't go into detail why Jesus was drawn to this one man, this this one lame man. There were multitudes of people there. The, The porticos were there. They could get out of the weather. They could be kind of protected from the sun. And they would lay there for days on end. And Jesus yet sees this one man and is drawn to him for whatever reason, and he says to him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to get well? And, and you might look at that, as I said, and say, what kind of question is that? He's been laying here by the pool waiting for just the right time in order to be able to get well. You would think he would have said to Jesus, yes, yes, please. Can you do anything about this? Can you even lift me up and get me in the water at the right time? See, there was this legend. There was no real evidence that it was a, a true thing, but there was this legend that every now and then the waters would stir. There'd be a stirring of the water, and when the water stirred, that was an angel of the Lord coming down and and stirring the waters. And if you could, by chance, be the first one into that water, if you could beat all of these other people who were trying to get some kind of of healing because of the water, if you could beat all of them and be the first one to get into that water, all you had to do was jump in, get in before them. And, they'd be, and you'd be healed. But he says to Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm lame, and, and I've been here all these years, and I've wanted to get in this pool, but sir, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to drag myself over there, while I'm coming over to it, another steps down before me and gets in there, and I'm left out in the cold. No matter how many times I try, no matter how sincere I am in wanting to get in that water, no matter how much I want to be made well by the stirring of the water and the angel of the Lord that comes down here, there's nothing I can do. I just can't get down there. It's almost like he's saying, well, sir, if you would just hang around here a little bit and let's sit near the edge, maybe when it stirs, you can get me in there. And Jesus looked at him and said, take up your pallet. Take up that which you're laying on and walk he didn't ask a whole lot out of the man, didn't ask anything out of him. He, he, didn't really, uh, he didn't really say, do you believe that I am who I'm saying that I am? Do you believe that I'm the son of God? He didn't even say, do you believe I can do this miracle? He just said, get up, take up your pallet and walk after 38 years of not being able to do that. You know what the man did? He stood up, and he picked up his pallet, just like Jesus said, and he started walking. Well, you see, There was a problem with that because in Jesus' day, a lot of the law of God, which we know the law of God to be the Ten Commandments, that is His revealed law, and a lot of the law of God had been sort of, if you will, added to by the teachers and the Pharisees and the the priests of that day. And so they had all sorts of regulations that went along with every law. You know, It wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, you you shall keep the Sabbath day holy that's fine. That's pretty clear. But, but yet, let's define that. Let's talk about it. And every law was that way. They put all sorts of regulations uh, around the law uh, that kind of held the people in one sense in check, in one sense in bondage, in another sense it gave them a real ability to depend upon their own righteousness, their own goodness. It's kind of like we do today. We kind of get this idea that if I can just obey a certain number of regulations that I kind of make for myself, Semi built on the Word of God, semi built on Scripture. If I can keep those, I can feel good about myself. It's amazing. We always choose things to look spiritual, things that we don't really have a struggle with, don't we? Things that we, we know we can do fairly easily. So if we can make these the, the pinnacle of, of what it really means to be a believer, then, then we become just like the Pharisees. We become legalistic just like they are. But in Jesus' day, these regulations built up. There, there are all sorts of kinds, hundreds of them. But, but a couple of interesting ones. One deals with this particular man. He, he said uh, the, the regulation around keeping the Sabbath holy was, you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. Couldn't carry anything. Now the Pharisees said, now there's an there's a understanding that you got you to gotta carry your clothes around. You got to you got to be able to put on your shirt and your, your tunic or whatever you wear. So it's okay to carry your clothes around. So it's not really a break of the Sabbath if you put on your clothes and carry them. I suppose if the man had just taken up his pallet, thrown it around his back like a, a cloak of some kind, he'd have been okay. But he didn't do that. He just picked it up and carried it. And the regulation said you cannot carry anything outside of your home on the Sabbath day. There was another regulation that, that was that you couldn't do anything medical on the Sabbath. You, you couldn't do anything medicinally on the Sabbath. Now, in Jesus' day, one of, the, one of the cures, one of the things to help with a toothache was you put vinegar on a tooth if it was aching. And that vinegar kind of drew out some of the poison. It kind of gave them a, a sense of relief, and so they'd put vinegar on that. But you couldn't do that on the Sabbath. But the regulation went on to say that if you would put enough vinegar on your food as you eat, that would be enough to take care of the toothache, then that was okay. Just couldn't put the vinegar directly. You had to put it on your food and then eat your food. So that's kind of how they dealt with that. Uh, another way, they said you couldn't travel on the Sabbath beyond your home. You had to stay home on the Sabbath. And, and so the, they sort of said, well, what, is, what does it mean to stay home? Well, the, 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 the legalists, the, the Pharisees, they came up with this rule. They said, well, you, you can't travel more than 1,000 yards from your house. And so they would mark out where a 1,000 yards was, and that was their thing. But they said, you know, if you you really need to go further, if you you go out a 1,000 yards and hide some food there on the day before the Sabbath, on Friday, and and then when you need to travel the next day, maybe you need to go even another step, go hide some more food, that if you would travel out to that place where you would hidden food and you would sit down and eat that food, you are still in your house because you eat in your house on the Sabbath. And so now that 1,000 feet was a part of your home. And so you could go another 1,000 feet, but without breaking the Sabbath. Do you, you see the, the silliness of some of the regulations? And, and so they looked at this man and they said, listen, you can't pick up your pallet. You're, you're walking, you're, you've been healed, but that's, that's not the, the point is. You're breaking the Sabbath law. How do you dare you to do that on the Sabbath? And what did he say? Did he say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll lay it down, I won't do it. He said, no, hey, it's not my fault. That man who healed me, he told me to pick it up. I'm just doing what he said. Boy, he, he would have made a good 21st century American. It's not my fault. Somebody else told me to. Somebody else made me do it. I'm just, I'm just doing what I've been told to do, you know? I, it's, it's, don't hold me responsible. It's my mother's fault. She babied me too much. Or it's my father's fault. He was too overbearing. You know, whatever. We, we find ways to, to blame other people. The things that are going on. That's what's taking place in this particular instance. He says, I don't know who it was. I don't know who it was, but he told me to pick up my pal. I just did what he told me to do. Later on in the temple, Jesus sees him and, and identifies himself as who he is and says, I'm the one who told you to do this. I'm the one who healed you. And, and what did the man do? He immediately went back to the, to the authorities, to the religious authorities, and he said, there's the one who did it. Really thinking, I guess, he would get the responsibility off himself. So we, Jesus lived in a day where legalism was rampant. And we live in a day where legalism is rampant. Anytime you take something and add it to the gospel, add it to the, to the simplicity of Jesus Christ, and say, you got to do this, or you got to have this, or you can't do this, and really be saved, you're, you're becoming a legalist in, in, the, in the truest sense of the word, and you're saying, listen, I'm better than others. I'm okay because this is who I am. I, have, I, I am obeying what I believe to be the essence of Christianity, when it may not be the essence of Christianity at all. You know, the truth of the matter is, and there's a book titled this not long ago, and the book's really good if you want to pick it up and read it. It's entitled... Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I would would turn that around a little bit and say, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It equals putting something in that makes the law more important than the gospel. And and this is kind of where we live a lot today. We, We set ourselves up we we don't look to just what the scripture says, what the gospel says. We set ourselves up and we find ourselves in the same situation that the legalists of Jesus' day did. You see, regulations are there for one reason. Regulations are put there so that you can rest in your performance. You can rest in saying, Oh, I'm okay. That's what these guys did. They said, Listen, if we keep the Sabbath by observing all of these regulations we put in then then i'm okay you may not be okay because you're not doing the regulations the same way i am you're not living out the christian life the same way i am but you know if, if, if it doesn't matter because i'm okay because i'm doing what i have added to the gospel as the essence of being a christian legalism is always deadly when the sabbath was given it was given for a reason was given to the covenant people of God to show them the character of God. It's to show them that God Himself, you know, created the world in six days, it says, and on the seventh day he rested. But there was no real Sabbath up until the law, when Moses gave the law and said, this is how it's to be. How it's to be. And, and the law, the Ten Commandments, please don't look at those as being, okay, here are ten things that if I can keep them, I can be all right with God. I want to tell you something. You can try till the day you die to keep the commandments, you'll never be able to do it. And the commandments were never given in the law to help you be able to be right with God because of your performance. Because I don't make any mistakes, I don't sin, I don't. It never was. The law was given for one reason. Paul said to the Roman Christians in chapter 3 and verse 20, he said, because. By the works of the law, no flesh, read that, no man, no woman, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the law, nobody will be made right with God. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law has a purpose. The the law is there for a reason, even in our day. But it's not so that you can say, okay, here are ten things, I can just check those off just right, I can be right with God you can never do it. The law was given not to justify you in the sight of God, not so you can try harder in the sight of God. The law was given to show you that there is nothing at all I can do to be made right with God. Nothing I can do. I can try all day. I can try my whole life. I can live as a hermit somewhere. I can hide off somewhere in a monastery and try to be perfect, and you can never ever do it the law was given to show us the character of god and show us that we can never reach that even though jesus and even though peter said you know you be holy as your father in heaven is holy we realize that's a standard that is beyond our ability to reach at all times there's no way so what do we do well, we have to come to realize that God, in giving the law, is more concerned that you find your rest in Him alone, and that you be, your heart be completely submitted to Him. That's where real rest is found. That's the passage Ricky read out of Hebrews. We studied Hebrews a couple of years ago, went through that book, and we saw that in that point, the rest is in Christ. The rest is Christ. It's not a rest that is just physical but it's a rest that comes from knowing him. It's a rest that comes from having your heart and your spirit and your whole being submitted to him. When Jesus was asked, what is the the greatest commandment? What is the greatest thing? He says, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the greatest commandment. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, that's exactly what it's dealing with. Loving God, having no idols, putting God Above everything else, having your worship for Him be pure, your heart being totally set up on Him. That's the essence of the first four commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, he says, is sort of like it, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the last six commandments, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Those are all commandments that deal with our relationships horizontally. So Jesus says there's the synopsis of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Fix fix your thoughts on Him. Fix your life on Him. Fix your purpose on Him. Jesus Christ and Him alone. And then love one another, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He doesn't even say love your neighbor better than you love yourself. He just says, just take care of your neighbor, love your neighbor, meet your neighbor's needs that you see in the same way you care about your own needs, same way you care about yourself. So Jesus performs this miracle, and then the legalists go berserk, literally go berserk. First, they center it on the man, and they say, listen... You can't do that. And he says, it's not my fault, it's his. Finally, Jesus identifies himself to him and makes a very powerful statement. Behold, you have become well. Now do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You It sounds like Jesus is saying, okay, if you work real hard, you can be sinlessly perfect and nothing else will happen. It also looks like he's tying the man's sin to this malady. I don't know if he is or not. We know that later on, the man, when he does the miracle on the man that's blind from birth, and even the disciples say, why is this man blind? And all the Pharisees say, why is this man blind? Is it because of his sin? Or is it because of his parents' sin? Why is it? And Jesus says, there's no direct correlation here. It's not that he's, he's blind because there was a specific sin. But I want you to understand something. All sickness, all blindness, all, uh, all problems in this world... Are directly related to sin. Directly related to the fall. Had there not been the fall, you wouldn't be sick. Had there not been the fall, had sin not entered into our lives and into the world, then there would be no blindness, there would be no lameness, there would be no maladies at all by individuals. So Jesus is saying here, I want you to understand something. You gotta find a solution for your sin. This man, he did not call this man to repentance necessarily there, but there's an implied repentance call in this, though it's very implied, not explicit. You need to repent. You need to see that you can't live perfectly. You need to see that there is only one hope, and that hope is in Christ, the one who made him well. But this guy seems content, at this point anyway, uh, just to be made physically well. There's no, no indication here that there's a, a great spiritual renewal. And I think that, that kind of speaks a lot about what we look for in our world today. Just because a person may get healing physically doesn't mean there'll be a spiritual renewal in their life. Doesn't mean there'll be a spiritual healing in their life. Doesn't mean there'll be newness of life. They just get a, a, a fix for a short time, perhaps. It ought to drive them to the Savior. It ought to drive them to the one who is the ultimate healer. But many times it doesn't, and it doesn't seem to have necessarily this man because he immediately wanted to run back out and tell on Jesus. And he says, there's a guy who did it. You, you want to blame me for picking up my pallet? Not my fault, his fault. Go talk to him. So they did. And, and then they began to get on to him and persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath on the day that was given for rest, on the day that was given for laying aside all your labors. And really, uh, an understanding in Scripture, in the Old Testament, of the Sabbath rest was, was not the cessation of everything. But it was just stopping doing what your normal work was. If you, I, for, all I, for all we can hear here or see here, I don't think this man who's been uh, crippled for at least 38 years, I don't think he had the job as a furniture mover. So he wasn't violating what his normal work was. Remember, his normal work was sitting there trying to get in that water and probably, probably begging. And he probably had a fairly lucrative business in doing that. But, but here he is on the Sabbath healed, and he picks up his thing. But then Jesus is attacked. He's persecuted. He's, he's criticized by these Pharisees and by these religious leaders because he's doing these kind of things on the Sabbath. He's healing on the Sabbath. I guess that would be the medical. Uh, violation. Can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. What, who do you think you are? God? And Jesus says, Well, as a matter of fact, my Father, my Father's working until now, and I myself am working. I'm sure they looked at him and said, What? And they looked at each other and said, You're what he just said. He's saying that God is his father. The one we see as creator, the one we see as the lawgiver, the one we see as the, the king, who we certainly would never call our father. He's calling him father. He says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, they wanted to kill him all the more because he was not only breaking the Sabbath but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know, it's, it's amazing that Jesus says to you and me, I want you to understand something. When he, when he got, We studied the Sermon on the Mount several years ago, and when he came to that Sermon on the Mount and he came to that prayer, that model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you pray, if you're in me, if you're my disciple, When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father, who art in heaven. It's relational. Here Jesus is saying, my Father is the one who is working until now. He's the one who gave the law. He's the one who is the judge of the law. He's the one who is the one who rules over all the law and all things. And he's still working, and so am I still working. I myself am working. They said, "This is, this is crazy." He thinks he's exempt from our regulations on the Sabbath because he claims God is his father, placed himself equal with God. He's, John's already told us in the beginning was the Word Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him, and apart from Him, was not anything created that was created. John has already said, here's the correlation. Here's the identity. This one who is the word is God in the flesh. And now Jesus is just clarifying that. My Father is working. I am working. He'll later say in this same book, I and the Father are one. Well, you just wait till you see what the Jews do with that one. You think they got upset with him just saying, My Father's still working? Boy, they really go berserk when he says, I and the Father are. one. But I think the thing that Jesus wants us to see here, and don't miss this. It's easy to read through this passage and miss this if you're not careful. Jesus is wanting you and me to see that the Jews were really confused, and if we're not careful, we can be just as confused as they are. The Jews thought they were right with God because they set up their regulations and and they had their regulations and they sought to live by them as best they could and they really worked hard at it. And Jesus wants to see that, that rest is not rest in our accomplishment. Rest is not rest in our performance of the law, but rest is our rest in Him. He is our Sabbath rest. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He has come, and when we come to him by faith, when we put our trust in him, when we are bought by him with a price and made his children, when he he changes our hearts and changes our lives, we don't need a lot of regulations. We just need him. I I love what Martin Luther said in in one of his letters. He said, listen, trust Christ and do what you please. Now, Luther wasn't advocating Christ going out and seeing what kind of sins you could get into. Luther was just simply saying, listen, if you come to Christ and you really trust Christ, if your focus is on following him, obeying him, trusting him for every area of life, then you trust him, you walk with him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can do whatever you please because he's guiding your desires. He's molding your desires. He's giving you what you ought to be desiring that's what the psalmist meant in psalm 37 when he said trust in the lord uh, or delight excuse me delight yourselves in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart if you're delighting in the lord listen it, it's not saying just you get whatever you want it's not health and wealth and prosperity gospel it's it, it's not okay if i just delight in the lord then i'll tell god what i want and he's obligated to give it no delight yourself in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart you'll desire the right things I didn't go the cruise last night because I knew what I'd be desiring. It's Corvette weekend. You know, so I stayed away. I knew that wasn't the right desire. That's not what God's talking about. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's saying if you walk with Christ, if you delight in Him, if He is the passion of your life, if He is the most important thing in your life, then your desires will be formed by what His desires are for your life. You don't need a lot of regulations for that. don't need a lot of rules for that, a lot of do's and don'ts. You just need to walk with Him, and He will direct your path. Paul said, no man is justified by the law. Now, now Paul had some problems with some of his churches wanting to do that. Some of the churches he planted, some of the people he wrote to. If you remember, Paul made it clear. Paul stated over and over to churches like Galatia and, and Colossae, that, listen, the law is not where rest is found. Rest is found in Christ. Rest is found in the gospel. He wrote to the, to the Colossian Christians and said, you're set free from legalism. He said, listen, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or hear this or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The feast days, the festivals, the new moon, the dietary laws, all of those were were merely shadows that pointed to Christ. They said, listen, it's in Christ that you find your rest. He is your Sabbath rest. It's in Christ where you find real joy not in regulations. It's not in rules. It's not in saying, oops, I can't pick up this pallet today because it's the Sabbath, but I can walk, But I'll go find another way to do something else. Not that at all. Or to the Galatians. Oh, you remember those Galatians when he said, oh, you foolish Galatians. Are you so quickly departing from Christ, from from what you have learned? And in in chapter 4, he said, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? That's legalism. That's the elemental laws, the rules, the regulations. How is you turned back to the weak and the, the elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain, Paul said. Listen. Don't be enslaved to legalism. Be set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, "Well, I've already trusted Christ. I've already been saved. I've already had that experience, if you will. I've already—I know all that." I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about believers who sometimes get so caught up in do's and don'ts that they make the world think, and they themselves think, this is is the essence of Christianity. I do this or I don't do that. Listen, listen, my friend. The essence of Christianity is knowing Christ and walking with Christ and trusting Christ and believing the gospel and not getting caught up in things that will bind you and bind your conscience apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from the Scriptures. that's vital that you learn that as a 21st century christian that's vital that you learn that or else you'll be placing all sorts of things on other people and you'll say well you know they're not as good a christian as i am because they do this and i don't do that and and, and you know i'm i'm worried that they'll do this and, and you know you just you get all caught up in that and a, a an incipient pride grows up and says well i'm better than them because i don't do that no not necessarily I still, love the, I still love the story that my New Testament professor told in seminary. If you've been around Grace a while, you've heard it probably too many times. I'll tell it again for you who haven't heard it. Went to the 1956 Baptist World Alliance in, in Munich, Germany. I was five years old at that time, so I didn't know anything about it, all that. But he went to the meeting. And all these American Baptists flew over there. And they were getting off the planes to 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 be there and and be a part of the of the Baptist World Alliance. And and Curtis Vaughn was there and, and he said, you know, the German Christians were so shocked, the German Baptists were so shocked to see American Baptists getting off those airplanes smoking cigarettes that they almost spilled their beer. We have to be very, very careful. I'm not advocating beer nor cigarettes. What I am advocating is not elevating cultural norms to make them biblical standards. Oh, doing harm to the temple of the Holy Spirit is wrong. And we ought to avoid it as best we can. Whether it's overeating or Smoking or whatever, we ought to avoid it. If you know, we ought to we ought to protect this. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit, no doubt. But I could never say to somebody, "You can't," you know, "You're not a very good Christian because you do this or that." Any more than I wanted you saying that I'm not a very good Christian because I was overweight or am overweight. You know, I don't do that. You can't elevate extra biblical things to say because I don't do that. I'm a better Christian than you are. because I observe the Sabbath, that's what they wanted Jesus to do, that's what they wanted the, the, the man healed to do. because I observe the Sabbath, I'm better. I love what Donald Ray Barn, uh, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said years ago, he's dead with the Lord now, but he made this statement about this passage. He said, "When we are thus set free by Christ, The Lord will possess our Mondays and our Tuesdays, our Wednesdays and our Thursdays, our Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and all our days and weeks and months and years because He has bought us and possesses our hearts in simple grace. In other words, it's not a matter of setting this day aside and saying, This is the Lord's day. I think we're to worship on the Lord's day. I think the, we'll get into that later. But, but I, I think there's a gathering together of people. But listen, this day ought to be to the Lord, and tomorrow ought to be to the Lord, and Jesus ought to possess your Tuesday, and he ought to possess your work life and your school life and everything you do. Because he's not just Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of all of life. Everything. These people wanted so much to keep these regulations in place that when they saw Jesus healing on the Sabbath and, and calling God His Father, they said, listen, we've got to kill this man. The gospel is dangerous stuff to a lot of people. The gospel is dangerous because the gospel sets us free to be what God has called us to be. It sets us free to be His disciple, not, not bound not in bondage to legalism. I titled the sermon, The Distraction of Legalism. Because when you let regulations and rules control your life and not the gospel, not pursuing Christ and Christ alone, you will be distracted from the truth. You will be distracted from His call. You will be distracted from being what he's called you to be, doing what he's called you to do, speaking what he's called you to speak, and living a life of freedom in him like he's called you to live. Jesus said, again, later in this gospel, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free won't bind you in regulations. It'll set you free to be what God's called you to be. That's the gospel. Now, the first sign showed us that the old religious routines were passing away. This this sign shows us that regulations that are set up to try and make us look good are giving way to the gospel? Have you trusted Him and Him alone? Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, it is our desire to know You. Or even as Paul said to the Galatians, better yet, rather to be known by you. Lord, boy, those, those legalists just wanted to kill Jesus on the spot. Because basically he said, listen, the Sabbath is, is, not, is not something we... Can find a right relationship with you on just by obeying some kind of physical law. But The Sabbath means knowing you and knowing God as our Father and resting in you. Help us, Father, to see that truth. Help us find our rest in you that will free us from the struggles of this life, that will free us from the overpowering struggles of this life will still struggle. But Lord, you struggle alongside of us. Free us, Lord, to be like Job was, to say, you know, I've heard about you, Lord. I've heard about you, but in all of this calamity that's been in my life, I have now seen your glory with my eyes, and I believe in you fully. Help us, Lord, see you in the whirlwind. Help Help us see you in the storm. Help us see you in the difficult things of life, that we might know you and be known by you and walk with you. Father, we thank you. Teach us this truth, even as we pray and as we sing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.